Welcome to the Relaxed Running Podcast, the show that helps runners and athletes in running-based sports transform the way they run. Here's your host, Tyson Popplestone. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Relaxed Running Podcast. This is episode 206. I'm Tyson Popplestone. And did you know it's only a month and a half until the Falls Creek Running Camp takes place this year? If you're not on board, get on board. Spaces are running out very, very quickly. It's going to be an absolute blast. I've linked the description to the actual camp in the show notes below. It's four days or four nights and five days from December 14th to 18th. So if you're half interested, if you're thinking about it, if you've been flirting about coming, come. It's going to be an absolute blast. We've got athletes coming from America. We've got athletes coming from Canberra. We've got athletes coming from all around Melbourne. Get up there. Come and join us. But for now, I've got to let you know about today's guest because she's an absolute champion by the name of Christy Ashwander. Now, if you don't know her, she's the author of the book called Good To Go, what the athlete in all of us can learn from the strange science of recovery. Christy is an accomplished science journalist, author, and former athlete. She's written extensively for publications like the Washington Post, New York Times, and National Geographic on a wide range of topics like health, science, and sports. In today's conversation, we look at a whole range of things from the world of recovery and how they impact us either physically or at least psychologically. We speak about the power of marketing and how that's dirtying the waters around what's actually beneficial to our performance. We look at where recovery is found and where it's always been found before marketing and money were really powerful tools in making us believe certain things. We look at the world of supplements and how beneficial they really are. We look at popular recovery tools, the things like compression tights and those massage guns and ice baths and I mean, so many more. They're just dipping our toes in the water, pardon the pun, of what it is that we talk about in regards to recovery. And we also talk about the power of placebo with these recovery habits that we develop. It was a really, really interesting conversation. If you want her book, if you want more, I've linked it in the description to this episode. But for now, let me welcome to the show for the very first time, author and all-round champion, Christy Ashwanden. I was, uh, I was thinking just coming into the podcast about how many of the recent conversations I've had on here, which have been based uh, around the subject of recovery or at least some practical ways that we can help our body be more equipped for when it comes to a better performance, whether that's in training or, or, or in racing. And so many things have come up throughout the course of these conversations, which are really, really interesting to talk about, uh, things like zone two heart rate training and ice baths and massage and so many things mm-hmm. that feel really, really good to get done. And obviously, when you look at uh, the performance side of things, you hear it and you go, well, of course, that's a, a beautiful place to start. And in so many respects, they can be. But one of the things that I found most interesting about reading your book is, and I thought a, a cool launch pad to jump into the conversation, sure. is around so many of the recovery myths, like how much of an impact is what we're doing taking place on our performance is actual physical and how much of it is, is psychological. And so I thought that's not so much of a question as it is a leading statement that I wanted to throw at you and, and just hear what you had sure. to say about that to, to kickstart the chat. 
Yeah, I think that's a really interesting and important distinction that you make. But I don't think that they can be completely separated, to be honest. And I think this is someplace where people sort of go wrong. So, um, yeah, for your body to properly recover, it needs downtime. It needs, you know, recovery, rejuvenation, rest. It basically needs the you, you need to be able to give it the resources it needs to do that healing and to, you know, uh, heal any damage that was done by the hard, intense exercise, etc. And I think where, where people often go wrong is that they make this distinction between, well, I'm really busy at my work, or I'm stressed at home, or I, I have this thing going on. And so they don't realize that sort of emotional and psychological stress from a physiological perspective, this also takes a very big toll on your body. So you may be taking a rest day, but if you're really stressed out, if your heart rate's high, you know, you're, you're fighting with your spouse or your roommate or, or you're, you're struggling uh, with something, something else that you're doing in your life, your body's not actually getting that full rest. So you're not actually taking a full rest day. And rest is not just about exercise. It's about sort of the full package. And I think you have to really think of yourself as, as this uh, multifaceted uh, individual with, with many different things, but all of these different aspects are playing on your, your physiology. And so when you're psychologically stressed, that is also stressing your body. And I think it's an incorrect assumption to think that that's completely different or separate from physical stress. For sure. I find this conversation really interesting. I had a chat to a guest on here, Gordo Byrne, about this recently, because one thing I used mm -hmm. to notice without any of the scientific language was whenever I was stressed or anxious or had literally, to use your example, been in a fight with my wife and then yeah. gone out to try and run or to, to race, it was just a recipe for disaster performance-wise. There was uh, performance-wise, there was always a, a real fatigue that seemed to follow those emotional states. And I think it's so easy to be really black and white about performance and to be like, no, but yeah. I'm doing all of the practical things. Like if you have a look at my training, and if you have a look yeah. at my recovery, and if you have a look at what I've been eating and the supplements that I've been taking, there's no reason <laughs> that my performance shouldn't just be incredible. But then the underlying assumption to that is that your emotions play absolutely no impact in your overall performance. And it's one thing that I think, I mean, this is a, a, a massive generalization, but I think throughout the conversations that I've had on here, there seems to be a real awareness or a growing awareness of the fact that that psychology does play a huge uh, impact in how it is that you're able to uh, execute your performance on race day. But it still seems to be a conversation that that's catching up. And I wonder how much of that has to do with the fact that it just can't really be seen as, as much as felt. Um, that may be part of it. I think, honestly, a lot of this comes down to right now we are at a moment where recovery has really become sort of uh, commodified. And so most of the messaging that athletes are getting right now about recovery is not science, it's advertising. Mm. And I think it's really important to understand this. And this is particularly true. So if you follow, so now, um, you know, all professional athletes have uh, social media accounts and they are obligated by their sponsors to promote those products that they're sponsored by. And if you are an endurance athlete, your sponsors are going to include 
probably supplement makers, sports drink makers, you know, nutrition stuff, all of these things, none of which are really scientifically necessary. Um, but what's happened is these companies have created a situation where they've basically bought their way in so that every professional athlete has a sports drink sponsor. And, a, you know, now they have all these uh, massage tool sponsors, right? And everyone has them. And, you know, I'm not saying that none of these things are helpful ever at all, but I just want to emphasize that really the messaging that you're getting is advertising. It's not science. And the fact that everyone's doing it doesn't mean that it works. It means that everyone's getting a kickback and they're, they're getting paid to promote those things. And they may really like them, but it doesn't mean that it's responsible for you know, their, their performance. And there's an example that I use in my book um, with Michael Jordan and Gatorade. Um, if you're, you're, you may have to be as old as I am, but they used to have these, uh, these ads Gatorade had, be like Mike, you know, drink Gatorade. And so the idea here is that the Gatorade was somehow responsible for him being this phenomenal athlete. Um, but I think any uh, reasonable person can see that the Gatorade is not what made him a phenomenal athlete. And it may be something that helped or didn't, but we have sort of this idea that if a very high-level athlete uses a product that it gives it sort of this sheen of beneficence where it must somehow be powerful or, or necessary. And I think a lot of this advertising really capitalizes on FOMO. So there's this idea that, you know, the margins are so small and you don't want to miss out on anything. And this must be so important because all of the pros are using them. And so what ends up happening, and I see this again and again, particularly at at sort of um, weekend warrior athletes, but but particularly people who aren't aren't necessarily professional, but are, are aiming for the elite levels. And, you know, people who are basically taking sports seriously, they tend to, there's this real instinct to focus on all this stuff that's being marketed at them these little things that at very best will give you very marginal gains, while at the same time, they are not mastering the fundamentals. You know, they're not sleeping enough. They're not managing their stress. They're not getting their overall nutrition right. They're not getting their training right. Maybe they're not taking rest days or they're training too hard or they're not training enough, whatever it is. You know, one, one very common thing is you have sort of a newbie runner who uh, feels like every time they go out for a run, they have to eat an energy bar afterwards to replenish and then all of a sudden they can't figure out I'm running more and I'm not losing weight. Well, it's because, you know, you're adding these unnecessary calories and there's this whole myth about the recovery window. And there was this idea for a while that you needed to eat something right away after exercise to really maximize your recovery. And we know now that that's not the case, um, except under certain certain like very specialized circumstances. And that is where you're going to be performing again in short order before a meal. Um, that's a, a situation where you may want to refuel right away. But otherwise, it's perfectly fine to wait until your next meal um, to get those calories. Or, you know, if you finish your workout and you're hungry, have a snack. But realize that that should come out of your, your overall calorie budget. It's not something on top of, of you know, your normal eating. To, to go to your example with advertising, it's still amazing. I've been in, involved in sports, whether it's distance running or just other physical sports for for over 25 years now. And I was about six uh -huh. or seven when Michael Jordan was at his peak. And every time yeah. I put on a pair of Nikes, I'm still convinced I can jump that little bit higher. <laughs> right. And just to speak to the power of, of advertising. But to, to delve into that point a little bit more, it's a, it's a really important point because obviously marketers understand the importance of having high-performing athletes represent their product because that connection uh, that it makes with our minds is, oh, they're using it. Right. It's obviously good enough for me. And I catch this on a regular basis, even on Instagram, when I see the paid advertising 
uh, uh, banner at the top of the post. I go, okay, yeah. I know you're getting paid for this, but still you're using it. Yeah. And so I, I buy into that. But right. with saying that, there's obviously some uh, standout and some fundamental things that actually do work on a, a regular basis. But the idea of navigating your way through the chaos and the noise and the psychology of what it is that's being promoted is is quite difficult for especially a newbie athlete of any sport to try and get their way through. Are there, are there any sort of guidelines or, or, or pointers that a person in that position can have Absolutely. to figure out exactly what it is that they should be using, what it is that's just pure, bright, sparkly objects? Yeah. I mean, I think most of the stuff that's being marketed to you is bright, sparkly objects. If it's something you have to buy, it's probably not essential, frankly, um, you know, because the things that are really effective are sleep, stress reduction, you know, actual rest, like rest days, things like that, listening to your body. I mean, honestly, the most important thing that anyone can do for both their recovery and their athletic performance is to really learn to read their bodies. And this is something that can't be done with a product. It's not something, you know, you can get the fanciest sports watch available and all the data trackers, those numbers are not, they, they can be helpful inputs and they can be things that can be helpful for you for this learning process. But you should never trust the number on the watch more than you trust how you're actually feeling. And when you talk to the real elite elites, they have an incredible ability to read their bodies and to know how they're feeling, to really understand how they're responding to that exercise and to their training. And so you can't just rely on some external factor. And I, I think there's this tendency to believe that data is somehow, um, you know, and by data, I mean something that you put a number on or a number that you, you get spit out by one of these trackers is somehow um, more accurate or more, um, you know, less biased than something like how you're feeling. But all of the data, and I, I go through a lot of this research in my book about, you know, for a long time, there's been sort of this, this um, search for this magic metric that you could that you could measure that would tell you whether you're recovered or not. And there is such a thing and it's called your mood. It's how you're feeling. And this is where the athlete has to learn to, to read their body and to know. Um, so the thing that's really remarkable here is that there is no one absolute universal thing. Like um, a lot of athletes, when they're starting to get overtrained or under-recovered, they will, they will get really depressed or they might get really cranky. Those are very common things. Um, some athletes will feel a particular kind of heaviness in their legs. There are all sorts of things like this and there are common variations, but there's no one thing that's universal. You know, it's, it's pretty universal that you, your mood will change, but whether that manifests in depression versus crankiness or some other thing is individual. Mm. But the thing that is consistent is that for whatever individual, you will have that thing that's consistent. And so what you need to do is learn to figure out what is it for me? So for instance, for myself, I know that when I'm starting to be under recovered or overtrained, I will wake up in the morning with a little bit of a sore throat. It's just a little bit. And it's, it's the kind of thing that's really easy to dismiss and say, oh, I just need to have a little coffee. I'll be fine. You know, my throat's, throat's just dry or what? It's very easy to dismiss. But what I've learned is that this is a sign. This is my body telling me. Um, if I'm not sleeping well, this is another common sign. But that can be a sign, too, that maybe my body's not recovering because I'm not able to get that sleep. And even if I am, I mean, sleep is so, I just cannot emphasize enough how fundamental sleep is to recovery. And so if you aren't sleeping well, that's your number one problem. There's no supplement that you can take, no product that you can use, no gizmo or gadget or whatever that's going to overcome that lack of sleep. And so, you know, you can focus on some, some little tool 
um, you know, wh whether there's a particular fascia device or a, a massager or something like that, or maybe you, you've got sucked into supplements, none of that will have anything near the effectiveness as good sleep will. And I think, you know, people sort of underestimate the, the amount of sort of attention sleep deserves. It's very important. And I think the mistake I see people making again and again is that they fail to prioritize sleep. And so, yeah, they know it's important, but they keep going to bed too late and they have a, a you know a hard bed uh, arising you know, in the morning time, so they can't sleep in later if they go to bed too late. And so they're chronically skimping on sleep and you're just not gonna optimize your recovery as long as you're doing that. So you, know, you, you could do uh, an extra interval or you could uh, get a little massage, or you could sleep an extra hour, and that extra hour of sleep will make so much more difference than the other two things. For sure, I keep trying to explain this to my three-year-old and my one-year-old, <laughs> but they just don't care. Oh yeah, <laughs> so it. it's very yeah. interesting though to to use your point about the scratchy throat and the um, the, the blocked nose. I, I get very sinusy when uh -huh. I notice I start to get run down. Just uh, three days ago, I got back from Western Australia. And the flight back was uh, like uh, the red eye flight. So we left Perth at 11 p.m. And because uh -huh. of the time difference, we arrived back at Melbourne at 5 a.m. And I oh. got back into the day and I was like, this is going to be interesting. There was just no yeah. sleep. I just didn't manage to sleep on the plane. And uh -huh. then <clears throat> just like clockwork uh, that evening, I started to get a little bit sinusy. So I've started to mm -hmm. notice a few of those little correlations as well. In, in reference to and the – oh, sorry, go on, yeah. That kind of situation, I think the impulse too and the mistake that people make again and again until you either learn better or you end up leaving sport because you're always sick yeah. is that, you know, when you're feeling that and you're feeling a little run down, you can say, well, I'll be fine. You know, this will go away in a few days. And you sort of, um, I think runners in particular are very good at ignoring things or being in denial um, that, you know, you can deny that twinge and you can say, oh, I'm just going to run through it. And so then you can have, you know, a season long injury or a season long fatigue or a bout of overtraining that you don't overcome, or you can take a day or two off and be done with it. And there's really no, you know, once you get to that situation when you're feeling a little off, there's no going back to square one, you know, without taking that rest. So there's no, you know, you can choose to take a day or two off, or you can choose to be, you know, uh, hampered for the whole season. But that's really the choice. And I think people don't understand lots of times that that's really what they're looking at. And so the impulse is to just push through, which is the absolute wrong thing to do. Yeah. With reference to the point about data versus feeling, I'm very old school in my approach. So I'm uh -huh. happy to hear you say that. My first coach or one of my first coaches was, was nearly 80 years old when we started coaching. And the idea of heart rate monitors and gadgets and technology in general was just not something in his wheelhouse. So a lot of yeah. what we did was very uh, feeling-based oriented. So you'll run this at around 60% of your maximum or you'll run easy yeah. and easy is based on how you're feeling that particular day. And as yeah. a result, with the athletes that I coach now, my natural state, my natural habitat is to go, okay, let's go feelings-based. But one yeah. thing that I that I often come up against is, uh, and I'm trying to navigate how to fit this in most effectively, is a number of athletes really do appreciate the data side of running. So it might be mm -hmm. they understand that, sure, feelings is the, the thing that's going to give you the most accurate representation of how you're really doing over this data. But their love for data can almost override their appreciation yeah. for the feelings. And I'm trying to find some middle ground because at the moment, another thing which is, has become really, really popular 
is heart rate based training. Now I know it's been around yeah. for for a long, long, long time. time. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, if you have a look at the, the the most optimized or the most viewed YouTube videos on running performance at the moment, you'll you'll probably notice that so many of them are around zone two heart rate training or this yeah. easy conversational training. And and mm-hmm. I find it interesting because uh, probably eighty percent of my training load and and so many distance runners' training load would naturally be at around that zone two level, which is yeah. just that easy run. But so many people, and one particular, I, I had a, a doctor from Ireland on here the other day, and he'll say, no, it's important that what you do is all backed by heart rate because what you say you're feeling and what you're actually feeling are two very different things. So trust the data, not yourself. And he made a strong case for it. But as you were speaking, I was like, ah, oh, but it seems to lose a little bit of touch, I think, with what yeah. it is that you're speaking about. And so with, with all of that said, what role does the technology play in complementing perhaps this understanding of what your body's actually feeling, whether it's good, whether it's fatigued or sure. somewhere in between? Yeah. And I, I think I want to emphasize that I'm not saying data is bad and I don't, I don't, I would never tell people not to collect any of it and that they shouldn't look at it at all. I think it can be an important piece of the puzzle. I think the danger really comes when people are trusting that over their own feelings or they're sort of outsourcing that. So instead of, you know, really getting in touch with how they're feeling, they're looking at the numbers and the, the numbers are telling them how to feel instead of your feeling and then sort of seeing what the numbers are saying. So it's, it's sort of like, you know, when you wake up and in the morning, do you feel rested? I feel rested. And then you can look at your thing and say, okay, how many hours did I sleep versus getting up and saying, okay, how many hours does my uh, Fitbit say that I slept and therefore how am I going to feel? And there's an interesting study that I I have in the, the book um, where they actually gave people bogus feedback about how much they'd slept and it totally affects them. So if I tell you that you didn't get enough sleep, you're going to feel tired and you're going to, you know, and you'll sort of uh, project that. Whereas if I tell you, oh, you slept great, even though you didn't, you know, necessarily, you know, that, that will carry through too. So I think there is, um, you know, the effect of sort of how you're interpreting what actually happens, that's really important too. And I think where data can come in and where it can be useful is when you're really using it as a way of sort of observing and coming to understand your body rather than letting it drive you. And so, you know, if you can't stop a run at 9.9 miles because you have to think, <laughs> oh, I'm so close, you know, or kilometers, whatever units you're using, you know, that's that, that sort of compulsion can be really negative, I think. And I think it's really important. And, and it, we're really living in an era now where everyone's comparing themselves all the time. You know, I, I think that can be, on the one hand, it can be fun. You could compare yourself to your favorite athlete, you know, which may or may not make you feel great. But, <laughs> but you know, it's fun to be able to do that. At the same time, you know, I think people need to realize that people, when they're sharing these things, they're really putting their best foot forward to and their best selves. And I think it can really get people, I have seen this, where people really get sucked in by the numbers and it becomes a compulsion. And that can be really unhealthy and and. You know, the other thing to keep in mind is that if you're training for performance, you need to really be tuned into your body because everyone responds differently to training. And even you yourself may respond differently to the same training over time, not just over the course of a season, but over the course of your career. So that you're not always going to get the same benefits or the same um, effect from the same training. It's going to depend on what kind of base you have, where you are in your cycle, all sorts of things like that. And that's why it's so important to really pay attention to how you're feeling and how you're responding. Like, how is your performance 
also compared to how you're feeling. So it may be that on race race day, you feel a little bit nervous. And maybe as you're warming up, you feel not so great. But then once you get into the race, you're feeling great. And so that that's the important thing. And so then you need to say, okay, I've, I have observed that sometimes before a race, if I'm feeling a little unsure of myself, that's I shouldn't take that as a sign that I'm going to have a bad sure. day. And so you can take that in. But if you are the kind of person who looks at your watch and it says, oh, you're really tired today and it's race day, then all of a sudden you sort of primed yourself to have a lousy, lousy race. And so you need to, to not do that. And I think the other thing to really, it's very important for people to keep in mind is that these consumer uh, data devices, are the, they're very variable in how accurate they are. And one thing that I would I would caution people is you should absolutely never trust a risk-based heart heart rate monitor. They just don't work that well. They're not that accurate. You're not going to get good data. And so if you are outsourcing, you know, your decisions about training and things to a device that's giving you sort of bogus or inconsistent or inaccurate numbers, then not only is the, are those numbers not helpful, but you're sort of being led astray because um, they're not as good as you think they are. And this is also true for a lot of the sleep trackers as well, um, particularly, you know, any sort of consumer device that's like a wrist, wrist-based thing is not going to be able to give you uh, good, reliable data on things like REM sleep or what kind of sleep cycles you've had. And so I would not even pay attention to that. And this comes from, this isn't just me saying this, this is, you know, numerous uh, researcher interviews that I've done and studies where they've compared these things and looked at them, you know, to really good good sleep data, you have to be wearing, you know, much more sophisticated uh, equipment like they have in a sleep lab. Yeah, that's such an interesting point. I mean, there's there's so many directions we could take it. But just to emphasize one thing you said, the, the other thing that makes me a little apprehensive about some technologies, I, I recently saw uh, a notification from the brand Polar. And as you uh-huh. sign up to, to their product, you have to click some agreements to let you know that there's a good chance that with the data that you share with them that they can use that to share with other companies for marketing reasons and i thought oh, that's interesting oh, like i'm starting yeah. to get a little more protective about uh, just things like internet history and search history yeah. and being more cautious around who i'm allowing to see uh, there so the idea of just opening up like everything to do with my personal and physical health right. seems like a <laughs> like a questionable move but i wanted to go back to, to something that you were speaking about in reference to telling people that they had a better sleep than what they believed they did because placebo is obviously a huge factor when it comes oh, yeah. to not just how you feel but how you perform and and one thing I really noticed with a lot of top athletes is you can put two people in a same situation like perhaps a top uh, performing athlete and perhaps a community athlete or one who hasn't quite got to that level and a top-level athlete like a Jakob Ingebrigtsen has this incredible ability, even after a loss that he was expected to win, to quickly reprogram what it was or yeah. to reframe the situation in a way that leaves him still motivated to come back and not brokenhearted. And you yeah. look at that and you think, oh, in this situation, you're supposed to be devastated, but he does something that a, a lot of average performers wouldn't do. And he sees it from the perspective of, no, no, this is uh, an important part in my progress. So that placebo factor, or that's not so much placebo, but I mean that that mindset is the same as what we're speaking about, I guess, when we say placebo. It leaves us in a far more positive state. And I know with a couple of things we've touched on early uh, around marketing and advertising and certain products that we use, whether it's Nike or supplements or insert any other thing that we're being paid to yeah. promote, placebo is a really huge factor. Um, I'm sure there's so many different brands and uh 
what would you say, supplements and, yeah, as I said, insert so many other things that would fit under this umbrella. But can you speak to this idea of placebo effect when it actually comes to recovery a little more? Oh, sure. I mean, that's why I have an entire chapter, as you know, in the book about placebos. Um, You know, and I actually prefer to call it the expectation effect, because what's really happening here is that your expectation of what an experience is going to feel like or what it's going to be like can actually shape what what your actual experience is. So it's not, you know, this idea that it's a fake response is not entirely correct, right? Like if I expect to feel better, that may actually affect my interpretation of, say, the pain that I'm feeling. So for instance, if I uh, arrive on the, the start line of a race feeling really prepared and feeling fit, um, I may still push and I'm pushing myself hard. I may feel that pain of, of you know pushing myself and all that, but I may interpret it differently. It may feel differently to me than if I arrive thinking, oh, I'm undertrained. I'm feeling really tired. Then at the first, the first sign of that sort of twinge of, oh, I'm pushing myself, it sort of hurts, that will be interpreted differently. It will be like, oh, I'm, I'm in over my head or this is too fast. Um, so, so that expectation can really affect not just um, how it's interpreted by your brain, you know, those pain signals and whatnot, whether they feel like pain or they feel like something else, um, but just this expectation of, of what you think it will be can actually alter the, the actual experience because our experience and our feeling is not just, I mean, it, you can think of your brain as this like very sophisticated algorithm that takes all of these physiological inputs and turns them into things like your mood and how you're feeling and, and the, the actual sort of feelings that you have in your muscles or, or the feeling of, of your breathing and whatnot. And so, you know, it's not just you can say that, oh, it's just a placebo effect, but that placebo effect is really your body interpreting those signals and deciding, you know, what, what to make of them. And I think this is one reason it's so fascinating. I, I outline this in the book, but there's all this research. Um, there, there are so many little things that people use, you know, say a supplement or, or certain massage tools and things like this. And each of these you know, might, might provide a tiny little benefit. And, you know, the benefits are usually quite small, but they're not additive. So mm. It's not like, okay, so if each one gives you a 2% advantage, if you take three of them, you don't get 6%, right? It's it's all sort of pulling from that same draw. And that, that really suggests that there may be something else going on. And, you know, in regards to supplements, I do have a chapter in the book about that, sort of outlining it. But there's really absolutely no reason for athletes to be taking supplements. Um, a lot of these things are, you know, byproducts of, you know, there's all of this stuff about amino acids and certain milk proteins and things like this, you know, the dairy industry had a problem. They had all these byproducts they needed to figure out something to do with. So they started marketing them, uh, you know, to bodybuilders and things. And it was very brilliant marketing. But there again, there's just no advantage over regular food. Um, the the uh, exception to that may be for menstruating women, women of menstruating age. Um, they can be prone to iron deficiency, but it's very important actually that you don't just assume that that's the case and start taking supplements. You really do need to go get, get tested to make sure because there is a subset of the population that actually has um, the opposite where they're sort of genetically um, prone to uh, 
keeping too much iron in their bodies. And so the symptoms can be somewhat similar. Um, I actually um, know of a, an elite runner who had this happen and she was taking supplements and getting worse. It wasn't until she finally did the testing and realized, oh, wait, wait, wait. So I think, and that's one thing too, I think it's really important to not just do this stuff willy nilly. You should always have a reason for doing something. Guys, if you've been listening to the Relax Running podcast for a while now, one thing you'd be well aware of is I'm not only interested in helping you improve your running performance through training and recovery, but also helping you improve through running efficiency. That's the reason we launched the Relaxed Running Technique Analysis, and we're currently offering a members-only rate, a new members-only rate for $19.95 Aussie dollars per month. Through that membership, you can submit footage each month, which I'll analyze, give back to you, and we can go back and forth to make sure that you understand that you're implementing it, and I'll keep you accountable in making sure that you're applying the changes that we make. You can cancel anytime, but if you're a new member, you'll never, ever pay more than $19.95 per month. I think this membership will go up to about $50 to $60 per month in the next couple of months. So if you want to take advantage of this new members-only rate, Jump on board by clicking the link in the description to this episode. But for now, let's get back to Christy and learning about recovery methods to help us transform the way we run. Yeah, for sure. Uh, this is a, a really interesting topic to me. And uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Olav Alexander Boo, a triathlete coach to uh, two of Norway's most elite triathletes. But he's he, he brings on that... Um, boundary of elite coach and almost philosopher. You hear him speak about mm -hmm. the way that he gets his athletes to train, and it's it's beautiful because it's one of the, he's one of those people that you'll hear his advice to an athlete, and you go, oh, that applies beautifully to every aspect of my life. Uh -huh. But yeah, I heard him speaking great. on Rich Roll's podcast uh, quite recently, and one thing that he spoke about is exactly what you're saying. He doesn't get his athletes to use supplements, and this runs in the yeah. face of so much of what is popular. At the moment, probably because of a lot of what we've spoken about, the advertising, the power of marketing and things like that. But on a practical level, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, in the scheme of things, supplements have, have only been around for a little bit of time. And not to say that that disregards anything that's just been brought, um, you know, to, to sale over the recent years. But the idea of not looking at our diet, which I would say the general population doesn't really do the idea mm -hmm. of really boiling down how can i get more out of the food that i'm eating is overlooked with the question of okay what am i lacking in my diet and how can a supplement fix it yeah but he spoke yeah. about this idea of just tapping into whole foods like that is one thing yeah. that is hotly debated like anything yeah. with a lot of money behind it there seems to be some yeah. real strong debates it's like the carnivore vegan debate there's strong well i mean here. again this is all this is all marketing in the book i outline i mean i, I describe um, there, there were these supplement makers that were mad because they were being laughed off the stage at these uh, sports medicine conferences. So they they went and formed their own society. And basically, you know, so much of the stuff it may sound like science, but it isn't, and it's really uh, marketing disguised as science. And so, so many of these things that seem to have science behind them, so much of those studies are very small. I mean, it's pretty easy to do a bunch of small studies and keep doing them until you find something you publish that one, you know, so many of these studies have maybe 12 people. They're just not very reliable. And so it's garbage in, garbage out. Um, you know, 
if these things have make a difference, they're, they're going to be very small. But the thing you have to keep in mind, I mean, I have in the book uh, stories of multiple very elite athletes who have uh, ended up missing competitions because they tested positive because they, they inadvertently ingested some banned substance through a supplement. And people think, oh, I'll just take, you know, the good brands. But there aren't, you know, all of this stuff comes from the, the same sources. And a lot of it is not great. A lot of this stuff comes from China. They come from, you know, unknown sources. And so even if you think your brand is reliable, I mean, there's a story in my book about um, an athlete who tested positive from a supplement that was from her sponsor, you know, so it's, you know, it's just, there's just no, I mean, it's heartbreaking. There was a, a, a triathlete who tested positive from a an electrolyte tablet that she took, which she never needed in the first place. I mean, it's just heartbreaking. But this, again, goes back to this idea, you know, so much of, of what what the popular notions about sport and what you need to do come from these companies. They're not coming from true science. And you just have to be really careful. And I think one of the things I really wanted my book to accomplish is that I wanted people to read it to end not just knowing about this particular supplement or this particular recovery technique, but to really walk away with an understanding of how do I assess these scientific claims that are being made about products? How do I distinguish you know, the, the crap from the real deal. And there are a lot of ways to do that. Um, but it's, you know, it's just so universal, this marketing that's so widespread. Yeah. With that point, I know you dedicate a lot of the time to speaking about some of the myths and we've touched on a couple of them, but just for the a bit of time that we have here for athletes out there, I would love to hear some more thoughts from you personally on what you've noticed around the myths as you've delved deep into this subject, yeah. because uh, you don't have to stretch too far to realize that there's a lot like what absolutely does your head in when you see the, uh, or when you look at a number of the myths around uh, the road to recovery and performance. Yeah. Well, I think the supplements are, are one. I mean, there's like, I've just said that enough. Um, another one that's really interesting, and this this was a little bit surprising to me, but there's so much um, around icing and ice baths and cold baths and even cryotherapy, which I tried for the book. But here it's very interesting because not only is the icing not doesn't seem to be helpful. It may in fact be detrimental in a lot of cases. And so basically what, what's happening is you're, you're shunting blood away from your muscles, but you know, how are you going to recover and how, how are you going to clear out the waste products and all that? You know, you want circulation. And so you're, you're basically shutting that down and it's temporary. Um, you know, inflammation is actually how healing happens and that's how you get fitter, faster, stronger is those changes, your body, you know, your, your muscles, uh, healing those little micro tears that they get, you know, doing, making all of these changes. And so when you do things to shut down inflammation, you're also potentially shutting down your response to exercise. And there's some really interesting data suggesting that ice baths may actually, uh, slow and, and these effects are small. They're not gigantic, but they may, they may be slightly detrimental to recovery just in the fact that they slow slow it down they don't stop it entirely and so um but there's something really interesting about placebos and that is ones that are unpleasant are much more effective than ones that are inert or or pleasant and so i think yeah i think one of the reasons people are so drawn to icing is that it really feels like it's doing something you know it's unpleasant it kind of hurts and so people think well i'm really doing something good for myself yeah that's so interesting because i'm such a culprit for this one as well i always use the example of running my 800 meter pb the day after being on my feet for like 10 hours at an italian restaurant 
and I came uh-huh. home and I had an ice bath and in my mind I was like, I'm ready to go. I'm good to uh-huh. do it. But does the the impact of something like ice bath, depending on the sport that you're training for, I know this is a question you've had a lot, but it's a, a really interesting subject. Depending on the actual sport that you're taking part in, like maybe if it's a high impact sport where you've copped a knock in comparison to a long distance sport where you've just got a, a buildup of lactic acid or of um, inflammation or whatever else it might be. To use the ice bath as an example, is that good for some and not for others? Or from from what you've seen or uh, you know what you've noticed, it's pretty universal that it's a little questionable. Yeah, the, the thing that it's good for, it, it has a numbing effect. So if, if you're having a lot of pain or something, that can be helpful. I think you just mentioned something that I think explains a lot of it and that there's a psychological effect. Yeah, you feel like you did something, it can really give you a psychological boost. And I think that's actually where... Um, if if it has uh, benefits, that's where it comes from with icing. But I'm glad that you mentioned lactic acid because this is kind of a, a red flag when you're looking at marketing claims because there used to be this idea that lactic acid is what made you sore and you needed to flush it out. And there's all these products that are marketed to flush out lactic acid. Well, it turns out that, first of all, lactic acid is not what makes you feel sore. It is a byproduct um, when you're exercising intensely, so that's correct. But your body actually clears it pretty quickly on its own. So for the most part, probably uh, by the time you get around to using one of these products, your lactic acid is already gone. And so, you know, it's too late anyway. But it's also not the thing that that is um, limiting your recovery. So I think, you know, if, if you're looking at something and they're saying, oh, yeah, this is going to, you know, clear your lactic acid, you can just say, okay, th- good. I know I don't need that thing. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> you know, that's bogus. And we see some, one thing yeah. that I've seen a lot, uh, both in person and on social media recently is the the huge uptake in distance runners, mostly sponsored, I, I will say, who are yeah. using these compression pants, these compression, yeah. uh, not tights, but the big blow up pants. I actually don't know their official oh, yeah. name, but I hope you know what I'm referring to. I call them squeezy pants. Sque- yeah. <laughs> perfect. I feel like yeah. that's a, that's a perfect name for it. I'm yeah. sorry for all that paints a picture for us. Um, something like that, like have you delved too far into the conversation around the effectiveness of, of just that compression on muscle recovery? Yeah, so here's my take on this. I've tried the squeezy pants. They feel great. <laughs> I like them. If someone gave me a pair, I would use them. I think they're really pleasant. Um, there's pretty much no scientific evidence that it's doing something beyond, uh, you know, that there's some magic happening. Um, these devices were actually... Um, Devised, they were created for people with things like diabetes that have circulatory problems. Athletes do not have circulatory problems, so it's not really going to be increasing. You know, the one thing that it does from a physiological perspective is it can increase your blood flow, but you, that's not a problem that you had to begin with. So there's limited gains to be had there. But I think what makes them effective is that you're putting your legs up for 30 minutes sure. and you're relaxing. Yeah. You're not. You're taking time to do do that. You know, and I have a story in the book about a coach who had a, a young precocious athlete at the Olympic Village. And he said, you have to do this, you know, twice a day at this time. And he wasn't doing this because he thought it was going to do something magic to his muscles. He was doing this so that he wasn't off chasing girls and running around <laughs> and doing other things, you know. So, so you know, sometimes I think when these things are beneficial, they're beneficial for different, different reasons. Yeah. You know, massage is very beneficial because it's a chance for you to really relax. You're taking time out. You're not looking at your phone. You're not, your mind isn't elsewhere, but you're also really tuned into your body and you're paying attention to your body and you're checking in. How does that muscle feel? Oh, that muscle's really sore. And, um, you know, there's a lot of physiological explanations that are 
given for massage, most of them don't hold up. And yet I do think that massage is beneficial for athletes. It's just not for the sort of uh, scientific explanations that are given. It's useful because you're taking time to relax. You're giving yourself some downtime and you're, you're taking some time to really tune into your body. And again, this comes back to my bigger point of learning how to read your body, being able to understand how you're truly feeling. Yeah, it's something else. Like I, I had a chat to my massage uh, therapist or a, a guy that I see fairly regularly around the corner uh-huh. from where I live. And I said, mate, like part of what I love about getting a massage is even though I'm paying you, I feel as though you really care about what it is that yeah. I'm going through when we uh, have these catch-ups. And he goes, yeah. oh, there's definitely something to be said. Like there's that nurturing aspect to it as well where when you have someone who shows an interest not only in um, your recovery, your performance, yeah. but your welfare, you leave there. And I'm like, okay, physically that felt as though it was good. But emotionally, I'm like, oh, I feel as though I've just got someone else in my corner who cares about performance. Yeah, right, Look, for sure. I, I know that um, there's a lot of information. I'll make sure that I've got the book linked uh, in the show description for everyone who's interested in getting their hands on it. But if you had to boil everything down uh, to, to a little bite-sized takeaway piece for someone to um, take when they're looking at their approach to recovery, is there... Is there a sort of paragraph or a couple of sentences that you could give just to use as a foundation for everyone who's interested? Yeah, I would say master the basics, which are sleep, number one, you know, training, of course, nutrition. Um, I think managing stress is super important. And so that's going to look different for every person and depending on what's going on in your life. But that's really important. But there's no, you know, most of these shiny new things that are being marketed to you on Instagram or whatever the latest social media thing is, most of those are not going to be the thing that makes the difference. So I hereby give you permission to quit worrying about that stuff, (laughs) you know, and I think, uh, you know, stop worrying about that stuff and the things that at the very best will give you these tiny little gains and focus on the things we know really work because that's where you're really going to see a benefit. And, you know, I think the other thing to emphasize here is that these things that are supposed to help with recovery can actually be detrimental when they become a new source of stress. And it becomes like, okay, now I'm done with my workout, but I'm not done because there's 10 other things I have to do. And all of a sudden now it's taking more time out of my life. It becomes its own source of stress. And that sort of worry and anxiety about it can be detrimental in and of itself. So I think just sort of letting go of this idea that there's some magic thing out there that you have to get, you have to do, and that's going to make all the difference. The thing that's going to make the difference is sleep. The thing that's going to make the difference is, you know, good training plan, eating well, you know, taking time out of you, know, make sure that every day you have a little time that's just for you, where you, you don't have this expectation of being productive, that there's nothing like you need to have time where you're truly relaxing. That will look different for different people. I don't know what that is for you, but there's something. Find that thing and make sure that, that you really emphasize it. You need to prioritize um, you know, that downtime and, and your sleep. Well said. Well said. Yeah. Christy, thank you so much for making the time to come on. I'm a huge fan of your work. I'm a huge fan of your book. Oh, um, it was a very, uh, a very enjoyable conversation. So as I said, uh, the book is in the show notes below. But for now, hey, I'll, I'll let you get back on with your day. Thanks for stopping by. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Relaxed Running Podcast. If you're ready to become a faster, more efficient runner, visit www.relaxedrunning.com.